All right. Let's now go to Genesis 9, 18. 9, 18 to 29. 9, 18 to 29. The immediate aftermath of the flood. What happens in the life of Noah and his family? 9.18 Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Verses 18 and 19 explain who came out of the ark the men who came out of the ark. We do know that they, there were eight persons, Noah, his three sons, and their wives, a total of eight. We know that from chapter 7, verse 13. It says, On the very same day, Noah and Shem and, and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And then it says in eight eighteen. 8.18. So Noah went out, that is after the flood, Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And 1 Peter 3.20 actually says that there were eight persons who were spared from the global flood. So among these eight, we have these children or descendants that are born of them. It is clear that Noah only had these three sons that is, before the flood, during the flood, and after the flood, he did not have any more descendants. Noah himself did not. But Noah's sons did, because it says in verse 19, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. The whole earth was populated from these three sons. Right. Which means that all of us today, and every human throughout history... Since this time of the flood, after the flood, we have all come from Noah's three sons. This is pointed out in verse chapter 10, verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. Verses 2 to 31 explain the dispersion or the various nations of the earth and the the main names, the initial names of many of the regions and territories of the earth. Then verse 32 says, chapter 10, verse 32, These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. After the flood, everyone comes from Noah's three sons. Furthermore, 
We know from Acts chapter 17, verse 26, when Paul is in a foreign land, when he is in Athens, he is preaching the gospel to them, to the philosophers, and, and those who have an addiction to novelties. He's preaching to them the gospel, and he says to them that from one, God made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. By that statement in Acts 17, 26, from one he made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He is saying that not only are we all from Adam, but he's also saying and summarizing without an explicit statement, he's summarizing what we just read in Genesis 8, 7, 8, and 9, that we all come from Noah, Noah and his three sons. We all come from them. The whole earth was populated after the flood from the three sons of Noah. This means that there is no room. There is no room to nudge and to fudge and to wiggle and to put any kind of other creature that is comparable to man, whether before the creation of Adam and Eve, after the creation of Adam and Eve, and even after the flood. There's no room for that. We are only either humans or animals, but there is no intermediate creature. Hominids, ape men, monkey men, whatever we want, we want to call them, they aren't there. They never were there. They were never there in the past, and they do not exist today. Either we are humans or we are animals, one or the other. We either possess the image of God or we do not possess the image of God. This is critical. It's critical for ethics. Correct? Because the moment somebody in authority, a dictator says, well, we in this country, we of this race, we are superior to the others who are minorities in our country. We are superior to them. Then, therefore, we can exploit them. We can do whatever we want to them. They are subhuman. <coughs> they are unhuman. They are animals. So let's get rid of them or let's drive them out of our nation. This happens all the time, especially since the 1800s, the mid-1800s, with the rise of Marxism. Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism, Maoism, all of these are all basically coming from the same ideology that evolution is true, creationism is wrong, the fall is wrong, Adam and Eve, they never existed, that all was wrong, the flood never occurred, Noah never existed, Noah's sons did not exist, we don't all come from Noah and his sons, all of that is false. This part of the Bible, for that matter, all the Bible they believe, is false. And then they have a perverse ethic that they can treat whatever or whoever they want uh, the way they want. They can denigrate whoever they want and even obliterate them. No, that's not the case. We cannot do that. We cannot do that for ethical reasons because the Bible gives us no premise to do that. So no Christian should ever hold that view. Then, redemptively, we need to believe that we all come from Adam through Noah and Noah's three sons. Redemptively, we have to believe that because if we do not believe that, then there is no redemption. If we do not believe that, there is no redemption. Why do we say that? For one... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 to 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For by a man came death, 
so also by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. There he says, by a man came death. So he's telling us the nature of the issue or the the context of the issue. We're dealing with people, men, humans. By a man came death. He's referring to Genesis chapter 3. He's talking about Adam. And we know he's talking about Adam because the next verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, and death came about because of Adam, not preceding Adam, but following Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, death came into the world. Death does not precede Adam. It follows Adam. After he sinned. Genesis chapter 3. That's what he's saying here too. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. Moses and Paul agree with each other. Moses in Genesis, Paul here in 1 Corinthians. Because both have the Spirit of God. Both are speaking the Word of God. Therefore, they say that in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. I asserted that this is salvational. It's salvific or redemptive. It's redemptive why? Because if we deny the man part of it, the Adam part of it, we also have to deny the Christ part of it. Because they're in the same sentence. How could the conclusion be true if the premise is false? The premise is man and Adam in both of those verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. The premise is man and Adam produce death. If the premise is wrong, then the conclusion is wrong. There's no life in Christ. If we deny what the Bible says about Adam and the way sin entered into the world, the cause of sin, if we deny that and that we are all lost in sin because of that original sin, if we deny that, we cannot have eternal life. We cannot have redemption. We cannot have forgiveness of sins. We cannot say we follow Christ. We cannot say we believe in Christ. We cannot say we preach the gospel. We cannot say we adhere to the true faith. We cannot say anything like that if we deny the premise. If the premise is false, the conclusion is false. No matter how much we assert it, it doesn't matter. The demons know that God is one, and they shudder. So it doesn't help them. All they do is tremble. So in the same way, it doesn't do for us to just assert something emptily without any obedience to our assertion. We must believe that the two are connected because the Bible connects the two. That means that anybody who says otherwise is a false teacher, is a heretic, is a son of the devil, is headed to hell, and he's dragging people to hell too. He's a blind man leading other blind men. And if that happens, both of them will fall into a pit. Matthew 15, 14. Jesus himself said that. So we cannot follow anybody who undermines the gospel like this. Romans 5, 12 to 21 does the same, but more elaborately. Romans 5, 12 to 21. 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is very obviously here that Paul connects Adam to Christ. Whatever we deny about Adam undermines whatever we assert about Christ. We might say we believe the gospel, we might say Jesus forgives us of our sins, but we can't deny Jesus' connection to Adam. We cannot deny that. If we deny that, then we deny the true gospel. Paul makes it very clear here. We have to hold to what the Bible says about the creation of the world and the creation of Adam. There was no sin, no evil, no misery, no disease, no death, Nothing like that before Adam's first sin. Nothing like that. Evolution, old earth, whatever we call it, they believe that there was death, misery, disease, chaos in the world for four and a half billion years. 4.5 billion years. Let that sink in. I'm not, we're not saying thousands of years. We're not saying even millions of years. We're not even saying hundreds of millions of years. We're saying 4.5 billion years. Old earthers, evolutionists, whatever they're called. They believe the same thing. They believe that there was death before Adam ever sinned. There was misery before Adam ever sinned. There was evil before Adam ever sinned. They are undermining the Bible, and they're undermining Christ and the gospel of Christ. So, back to Genesis 9, 18, and 19. It is no statement to read quickly and to overlook. These words that say that Noah and his sons came out of the ark, and then names them, and then chapter 10 explains their descendants, it's it's not placed there in vain. It's placed there because it has a basis in our faith. So we should understand its basis. Why is it there? It's there because of what the Bible says throughout, biblical theology throughout. Furthermore, notice in verse 18, there was a phrase thrown in there. It says, And Ham was the father of Canaan. 
Ham was the father of Cain. Whenever the Bible does that, don't read that too quickly because there's an implication. There's an implication as to what is about to be said. It's said there because, verse 22, and Ham the father of Canaan. Also because of verse 25. So he said, cursed be Canaan. Verse 26, let Canaan be his servant. Verse 27, let Canaan be his servant. Chapter 10, verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6. And the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put and Canaan. Then so forth after that, their descendants. So Canaan was the son of Ham. And what's the significance? Because of this incident. Now, verse 20. 20 to 23. 20 to 23. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And there, right there, when it says he began farming and planted a vineyard, some people spe speculate that Noah did not do this before. This is new to him. He's, he's a new farmer. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that before the flood, farming existed. We know that from no, Cain, no. right? Genesis 4, Cain was a tiller of the ground. Farming existed, and Noah was a very intelligent man. Yes. He was very intelligent. He was a prophet of God, and he was a very skilled and intelligent man. He had to construct the ark, a huge sea sure. vessel, right? He had to construct that. So he had intelligence endowed by his creator to him. So he had all of that. He certainly knew about farming. He knew how to plant a vineyard. So this is what he reestablishes. He reestablishes it. Verse 21, it says, And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, he uncovers himself. Some people don't have this experience, but if some, and I, know, I don't know this from experience, I know this from what people say, that if you drink too much, you can develop body heat and you want to take off your clothes, right? Because of that. So this is what Noah did. He became drunk from the wine. He uncovered himself inside his tent. So this is the situation presented before us. Verse 22 and following says what Ham did and what the brothers did. Now, before we proceed on to that, there, this one passage or this one verse, verse 21, if we were to read it, we, we could read it in a few ways few interpretations. Some interpreters say Noah didn't know, so as he's experimenting, he gets drunk because he didn't know any better. I don't think that that's the case, that he didn't know any better. I think he knew. He knew how to, to farm. He knew what wine was. He knew what grape juice was. He knew what grapes were. He knew what raisins were, whatever. He knew everything about the grapes. I think he knew. Now, the passage itself even though it doesn't say that he sinned in doing so, a valid, a very valid and standard interpretation is to take it as though he sinned, even though the verse doesn't say it. Why? Because we know from many other passages that drunkenness is sin. Romans 13, 11 to 14 uh, condemns drunk drunkenness as that which is done at night. Sons of darkness do that, but not not those of us who put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't make provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. 
But Romans 13 says that the people of darkness do that. 1 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, or 9 to 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 also mention these sins. And those who practice drunkenness do not go to heaven. Okay, I'm establishing that the Bible condemns drunkenness as a sin. It does do so. So, because of that, it is okay, I think, to interpret Noah as sinning here, even though this text does not explicitly say so. Right. Now, having said that, even though the context doesn't say anything about it, there could have been other things besides just Noah who indulged in wine too much. It wasn't that he indulged in or drank wine, but he had excessive wine. That was the problem, right? But an example of how one person can mislead another person to drink too much happens in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Habakkuk 2 and verse 15. And this is an important passage. Habakkuk. Uh, Go to Matthew and go back a few pages. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2 and verse 15. This is a condemnation upon the people because it says in 2.15, Woe to you, who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. So as to look on their nakedness. 16. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Those who get other people drunk so that they, those who cause the drunkenness can look on the nakedness of the drunkard, who is punished for it? The one who caused the drunkenness. The one who got drunk was not punished, but the one who got him drunk is punished. And though the drunkard exposed his nakedness to his disgrace, the one who caused the drunkard to get drunk will be disgraced himself because of what he caused in the other person. Now, in this context, I think it would be a, a quite a valid interpretation, even though it doesn't say it explicitly, but because of what follows, it may well be that Ham had a part to play in this. Right. That Ham had a part to play in this because he uncovers, Noah uncovers himself and Ham looks on his father's nakedness, right? Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. When it says he told his two brothers outside, he wasn't telling them out of concern. We know that because his two brothers, it says, took a garment and walked backwards on their shoulders, walked backwards and covered their father. Ham didn't do that. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. And he didn't say, oh, it was a mistake. I didn't mean to see. He didn't say any of that. He went out and told them. 
He didn't say, hey, the three of us, let's do something to cover up our father. He, it, nothing like that happens. And the, we also know from the curse that Ham is blamed for it, yeah. right? Ham is blamed for it. So why is he blamed for it like this? Why is he blamed for it so severely? I think because he caused the nakedness of his father. He delighted in looking on his father's nakedness or his father's shame to the disgrace of that relationship, to the disgrace of, of Noah. He delighted in doing that, dishonoring his father. Then in continuing this dishonor, he goes and, and tells his brothers, hey brothers, look what I did, Look, come see yourselves. But they did not want to see themselves. They took a garment, walked backwards, and covered their father. They did right, Ham did wrong. Ham did wrong, and they did right. Now, should he have looked upon his father's nakedness, and whatever we may say about Ham perhaps causing the drunkenness or not, at least he should not have looked upon it and should not have told his brothers. He should have re not looked on it and he should have resolved it or he, he should have asked his brothers to help him resolve it as the brothers did resolve it. They walked backwards with the garment and covered their father. Why is this so important? Why is this such an egregious sin that it deserves a curse? Why is it? Because we know from this and also we know from other passages in Genesis and in the law of Moses and throughout the Old Testament that one should honor father and mother. And the first place of submitting to authority, the first place of understanding one's place and humility and obedience in society, the first place where that occurs is in the family. And the moment the child undermines father and mother, he is producing an action, producing a fruit, a bad fruit in his life that if it's not curbed, has danger for many other people outside the family later in life. Once he's old enough as a child, once he's old enough as an adult, especially when he's outside of his house as an adult, he has that <coughs> propensity to undermine authority, to dishonor people because he did not learn it first in his own household. And it, the Bible considers it very seriously. This is why in Exodus 20, verse 12, it is in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Why? Honor, because if you don't honor them, you, you will not have a prolonged life in the land. And in the land, specifically for Israel, was the land of Canaan. But for all of us, it will be, we won't live long on the earth. We won't live long on the earth. We know that because Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, quotes this passage, Exodus 20, 12, and applies it to all people generally, Christians specifically in Ephesians 6, but even Gentile Christians, wherever they are, wherever they live, that we might live long on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Furthermore, 
we learn that it's not just father, but it's also mother. Notice Exodus 20, verse 12 says, and your mother. And your mother. Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19, verse 3. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Reverence or fear mother and father. There it says. And, and, then, and in that passage, it reverses the order. It doesn't say father and mother. It says mother and father. So it's highlighting the need to honor the mother. And God took it so seriously, and even Jesus took it so seriously, that if one disobeyed, dishonored father or mother, he should be put to death. Right. He should be put to to death. For example, remember Matthew 15, Matthew 15, 1 to 20, 15, 1 to 20. The scribes and the Pharisees concocted a tradition that if they had an aging parent who needed their support, financial support, whatever kind of support to sustain them, an aged parent, and the son said, oh, do I really need to do that? The scribes and the Pharisees would answer that question by saying, Oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. Just give your money to God, korban. Give it as a gift to God. Offer it to God for the ministry, right? right. It's for the ministry, yeah, right. so I'm going to give it to the ministry. And if I give it to the ministry, I don't need to help my ailing parent. I don't need to help father or mother. No need. So... That was undermining the word of God. That was dishonoring the parents. You don't need to honor them in that way. You can dishonor them. That's what they taught. And Jesus called this a tradition of men. Jesus called this lip service to God and a tradition of men. And he said, Matthew 15, verse 4, 15, 4. For God said, honor your father and mother. That's Exodus 20, verse 12. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. Right. 20, that's Exodus 21, 17. Exodus 21, 17, Jesus quotes, and he puts these two passages together. Exodus 20, 12, plus 21, 17, and he says, Honor should be there for the parents, but if you speak evil, which in context means you undermine the due honor and obedience they deserve, if you do that, you ought to be put to death. Right. He agreed with the death penalty for this disobedience. Jesus did. It's a very serious crime against God. <coughs> Having understood that, now let's go back to Genesis 9, 24 and see why it is that there is such a penalty on Ham. Okay, Ham and his son Canaan. Ge Genesis 9, 24. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. <coughs> what his youngest son had done to him. Notice, done to him. This, may, this at least includes looking at it and telling the brothers... Presumably in mockery, telling the brothers instead of handling it correctly. But it may also include 
done to him may also include that he got him drunk. Okay? Done to him. We also note, as a matter of of, uh, birth order, it's the youngest son. Ham was the youngest son. Even though... um, in, in many places, or several places, the order is usually Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's usually the order that they are announced, but Ham was the youngest son. And it may be, it may be, according to chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 21, that Shem is either the older brother as it says in the New American Standard Bible, that Shem, the older brother of Japheth, so the order would, according to these verses, be that it's Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Ham is definitively, certainly, the youngest. Or, if you look at your footnote in your Bible, and maybe your translation actually has it in the main text, it may say that Japheth was the oldest or the elder brother. So the birth order might be Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Those are the two options. I don't think it has a bearing on anything significantly theologically. Um, If Shem is the middle son, the second born son, then it would just be another example of how God undermines birth order to show that it all depends on God. It would just be another example of that, which is an important concept, that God undermines birth order to accomplish his purposes. Birth order is not what God uses in order to save people from sin. He doesn't use that. He undermines that and does whatever he wants. He chooses whomever he wants in the birth order. Okay, now back to verses 25 and following. Noah, remember, he is a prophet. 2 Peter 2.5 says he was a preacher of righteousness. We know he's a prophet here because he hears the oracles of God, right? In Genesis 6 and in Genesis 8 and in Genesis 9, God's word or God's oracles are delivered to him. So in that sense, he is a prophet. So as a prophet of God who has the Spirit of God, how do we know he has the Spirit of God? It says in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, verse 11 says, the Spirit of Christ was within them. The Spirit of Christ was within them as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Therefore, knowing all of that, biblically speaking, we must take verses 25 to 27 as not... Noah's rants and ravings based on the flesh, based on his sinful nature, but as an oracle of God, as a prophecy of God by the Spirit of God through the prophet of God. Okay? A prophecy through the prophet of God and the Spirit of God working in him. Verse 25. So he said, Noah said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, NASB, I would rather render it a slave of slaves. A slave of slaves. This expression, 
a slave of slaves or a servant of servants. In the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew idiom, Hebrew has a tendency to put two nouns of the same, two of the same nouns together in this phrase, uh, one noun of another, okay? Or one noun plus the second appearance of the same noun. We know this, for example, the holy of holies. The holy of holies means what? The most holy, most holy place of the holy places. That's what the holy of holies means. Or let's say the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Song of Solomon 1.1. The song of songs means the best song, the supreme song of the songs of Solomon. The Bible says the king of kings. The king of kings. What does that mean? The supreme king, the highest king of all the kings, right? The king of kings. This is coming from a Hebrew idiom, which is a way to express the superlative, the highest of a group, okay? Or the most extreme example of a group. In this case, the curse on Canaan makes him a slave of the most miserable type. A slave of the most miserable type of slaves. Not a slave who has a wonderful master who loves being a slave and he may even have enough wealth as a slave to own other slaves, right? Not that kind of a slave. Not a slave or a servant in the court of a king who has all the, the privileges of court life, of the palace life. Not like that. But this is going to be a miserable condition for this slave. That's what he means by, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves, he shall be to his brothers. A slave of slaves, he shall be to his brothers. How are we to take this? Are we to take this to mean that it's just physical? That it is physical? Are we supposed to take it in a physical way or in a spiritual way? I don't think we can take it in a physical way because Canaan will have descendants, which is a blessing, right? Canaan will possess the land of Canaan, which is a fertile and lush territory on the earth. He's going to possess that, correct? Canaan, the land of Canaan and its kings will have supremacy now and then, here and there, in one time period or another time period, which they did, yeah. right? Over, throughout their history, they did. We know that not only from Genesis 10, but we know that from other places in the Old Testament. We know they had that. So he doesn't mean it in the physical sense. He must mean it in the spiritual sense. That the people of Canaan, Canaan and his descendants, that is Ham, Canaan and his descendants, are all cursed by God. They're all cursed. Spiritually, they are devoid of salvation. Spiritually, they have nothing. Spiritually, they are idolaters and practitioners of immorality. There's no hope for them. That's the curse he pronounced on Ham and Canaan. Now, one might ask, why is it Canaan and not Ham? I believe it's this way because God chose Canaan 
and not the other ones. For example, chapter 10, verse 6, it says, Cush, Mitzrayim, and Put, and Canaan. God chose to show this example of complete um, spiritual corruption in Canaan. He chose Canaan for that. This is a, an example, in other words, of Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God even makes wicked people in order to punish them on the day of judgment, on the day that their evil is exposed and punished. That's what he's doing with Canaan. And when he does it with Canaan, as opposed to his brothers, Cush, Mitzrayim, and Put, when he does that, he's also doing it against Ham. Sure. Right? For example, the, the opposite is true in the case of David. David was redeemed, right? He was a prophet of God. He was redeemed. He, he had sin. He was redeemed from his sins, right? In Christ, David was redeemed. But David's descendants were blessed. And in 2 Samuel 7, David is overjoyed that his descendants will be reigning on the throne and that one of those descendants will be Christ. And he's overjoyed. So he knows the blessing that God announced to him benefits him when he hears that announcement, but it will also be in the future. David understands that in terms of blessing. So in terms of the curse, when Ham and Canaan, both reprobates, both wicked men, when they are cursed, it does also strike Ham. It has to strike terror in Ham, unless his conscience is so seared that he's immune to even that. But it was a punishment on Ham for his son Canaan to be cursed forever. It was. And that's why he says it like this and does it this way. And we shouldn't be surprised that the sin of one man is perpetuated and continues in the sin of his descendant. Isn't that what God said in the Ten Commandments? that whoever worships idols, whoever hates me and hates my commandments, that God will not only visit his iniquity, but also on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Right. Of those who hate me. Canaan hates God, so, so God chooses Ham and Canaan to be objects of his punishment. This is what happens. This is what happened with Adam in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, he put us all in misery, did he not? He put us all in the state of death when Adam sinned. And if we object to that, then are we also going to be fair-minded? We claim that God is unjust with that, but will we be fair-minded and just before God? When God blesses us and blesses our descendants because of what we've done, are we going to gripe and complain? Right? Physically or spiritually, are we going to gripe and complain? No, we're not going to do that. Well, why do that? Why don't we say, God, be fair. If you do this to me and bless me this way, do not bless, do not bless my descendants. If you're going to curse me, then do not curse my descendants. 
Who talks that way? Who believes that way? Nobody does. Which means that we ourselves are unjust toward God. We ourselves justify ourselves and condemn God. So who's really guilty, corrupt man who objects to the ways of God? Moreover, verses 26 and 27 actually have a spiritual blessing and prophecy. 26 and 27. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave or servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant or slave. Shem is blessed, Japheth is enlarged, and Japheth dwells in the tents of Shem. Japheth dwells in the tents of Shem. God enlarges Japheth. Does he mean this physically? No. He doesn't. Because we know that physically all the descendants of Shem were not believers. Did not have a spiritual benefit. They all did not live to be 70, 80 years old. Many of them were idolaters. Many of them died young. They died in infancy. So they didn't experience physical benefits. It must be a spiritual meaning. And if that's the case, what is the spiritual meaning? I believe the answer is found in passages such as Isaiah. Let's first go to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. 25, verse 6. 25:6. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Salvation for the peoples of the earth. But it's not for every individual or every nation or every family of the earth. We know that because in verses 10 to 12, there's a curse too on Moab. Some nations will not experience that. What he means by all peoples and all nations, he means all kinds of nations, all kinds of people throughout the world will experience the salvation of God. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. Verse 18. 66, 18 to 21. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan, to the, uh, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord, on horses and chariots, in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says 
the Lord. Okay. Remember Revelation 7? Revelation 7, verse 9. John the Apostle, what does he see in heaven? He sees in heaven these people. Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. They declare and praise God for His salvation. People from various nations. Of course, how do they all come to God, truly? As it says in Revelation 7.10, they have to praise the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. They have to know about Him. They need to be redeemed in Him to be saved. They need to take refuge in this supreme descendant of Shem, Jesus Christ, for them to be saved. Not only the supreme descendant of Shem, the supreme descendant of Abraham, who is a descendant of Shem, supreme descendant of David, the son of David, so forth. That's that's what the Bible means by this. He means it in a spiritual way. Japheth will be enlarged, meaning many among his descendants will be saved in Christ. And Christ is a descendant of Shem. So Japheth takes refuge or shelter in the tents of Shem. Finally, Verses 28 and 29. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. He lived 350 years after the flood. By this, and not only this, but notice with me chapter 11. 11 verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. And Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad, Two years after the flood. Then from Shem and Arpachshad, we go all the way to Abraham later in this chapter. Abraham, if we want to say, comparatively speaking, Abraham is more in our era (laughs) compared to Noah, who lived before the flood, right? right? And even Shem lived before the flood and after the flood. But Abraham only lived after the flood. So in that sense, he's more in our age or in our era. I say this because of a couple of reasons. One, we must take this account as a historical account. We have to take it as factual. It actually happened in history. Because if we deny what the Bible says about Abraham, we have to deny what it says about Shem. But if we deny that, we have to deny what it says about Noah. And if we deny Noah, we have to deny Adam. You see how all of this is bound up together? So intertwined that you cannot compromise any of the parts. You can't compromise Abraham or Noah or Adam. You can't do any of that. When any one of those individuals is compromised, everything in the Bible is compromised. Everything. Just like we said about 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Even Jesus is compromised. Amen. How do we know? Even Jesus is compromised. Because in Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, 3.23 to 38, 
We have a genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And as he goes back in the genealogy, first from uh, Joseph and then Eli and all the way back, notice he gets to David in verse 31. Luke does in Luke 3.31. He says that Jesus is a son of David. And then he goes back to Judah, verse 33, that Jesus is a son of Judah. And why is Judah important? Because in verse 34, he is the son of Jacob. And Jacob is the son of Isaac, and Isaac is the son of Abraham. And we keep going back from Abraham and look at verse 36. Abraham is a descendant or son of Shem. And who is Shem? Shem, according to verse 36, is the son of Noah. And Noah goes all the way back to verse 38. Enosh, Seth, and Adam. And if we deny all of this genealogy, we deny God. Because Adam is the son of God. Because God created Adam. You see how important it is. God's creation and God's work of redemption through prophecy and through this lineage from Adam and Seth and Enosh, Noah, Seth, I'm sorry, Shem, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and all the kings until Christ. This is why it's important. So when we read a plain statement, right? 9.28 and 29 do not read as metaphor. They do not read as poetry. They do not read like that. They read as a historical account. Noah lived to be this number of years, and then he died. Which is the way other parts of the Bible are written too. So-and-so lived to be this number of years, and then he died. So let's take it like that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.